Today's PJ Pod comes from the future of pharmacy practice. A new breed of shape-shifting polymath pharmacists have taken over the Solar System Health Service, redesigning patient pathways and carrying out galaxy-defining research. Actually, sorry, I got a bit carried away there. We're not beaming in from the future. In fact, these pharmacists are among us right now. In Consultant Post, you are trying to deliver that high level of expertise that you've gained and developed in your clinical practice to a wider population. So you're impacting widely on your region and even nationally and internationally. Being a consultant pharmacist empowers you a little bit. You feel as if you can walk into a room and say, this is what we're going to do. And people listen and want to want to follow that and want to participate. I feel like it really gets, it gets your foot in the door with people. People have quite a lot of respect for the roles. I think you have to like being busy. You have to enjoy the role, be willing to embrace change. You do really need to be able to work with a wide variety of people you know, across the spectrum, not just within the pharmacy team and work outside your own trust as well with your regional and national colleagues. I'm Dawn Connolly, Features Editor at the Pharmaceutical Journal. It's been two years since the Royal Pharmaceutical Society took control of the way consultant pharmacists are approved. So we thought we'd introduce you to a selection of these impressive individuals for an exclusive insight into what it means to practice at this level and what it takes to get there. So a consultant pharmacist is about system transformation. And that's subtly a little bit different from service transformation. That was Paul Forsyth, who's qualified as a consultant pharmacist, but isn't yet in an approved post. So I'm a cardiology pharmacist with a specialist interest in heart failure in Glasgow. So I could just say, look, here's half a dozen clinics that I've got up and running. Aren't they brilliant? So that's service transformation. But how does that fit in a system? So, you know, is it the right patients? Does it fit in with all the other healthcare professionals? Is it what's needed? Is it what government are asking us to do? Is it working? Look, where was the need and is the new one better? How are we building pipelines of people that can produce that service for you? How is it integrated with the other professionals out there in the system? So is it the right spend for public money? So the job of a consultant pharmacist is to try and knit all those things together. Consultant posts were introduced in England in 2005 and for the first 15 years they developed in an organic way and were based almost exclusively in secondary care. This led to some trusts having large numbers of consultants and other similar trusts having none. Wales and Northern Ireland followed almost a decade later and in Scotland there was no national policy on consultant pharmacists until 2017 and there are currently no officially appointed consultants, although several pharmacists in Scotland, including those we speak to in this episode, are qualified as consultants and have been working at that level for years. In January 2020, the government issued new guidance for the UK with the aim of providing a renewed impetus both to increase the number of consultant pharmacists' roles and to reduce variation. I think it was an appropriate time for the NHS to have a stop and see how it had grown. 
This is Joseph Oakley, Associate Director of Education and Professional Development at the RPS. I think there was also a question around how do we standardise the level of practice expected of consultant pharmacists? How do we make sure that all the posts are of a similar level? And how do we make sure that the individuals filling those posts have the um, entry level or baseline capabilities to effectively practice at that very senior level and have a very large influence on patient care. The RPS took over the process for approving consultant pharmacist posts which had previously been managed through a regional mechanism and in October 2020 launched what is called a consultant pharmacist credentialing programme. To date, it's approved 45 posts under the new process and successfully credentialed 20 candidates as consultant ready. And the number of pharmacists applying to become consultants is growing exponentially. Consultant pharmacists have a hugely complex role, often juggling lots of balls at the same time. They're required to work across the so-called four pillars, namely clinical practice, leadership, research and education, which are common to consultants across all healthcare professions. Now, the four pillars might sound like quite abstract concepts, but Rani Khatib, a consultant pharmacist in cardiology at Leeds Teaching Hospital, NHS Trust, finds that in practice, all four blend neatly together. Sometimes they overlap. So, for example, the clinical element is always there and needs to be in the consultant post, of course. But sometimes you blend it. So, for example, my research could be applied research and therefore it's applied clinical research. So you can actually conduct research while you're developing a unique clinical service of huge benefit to the patient. Rani gave numerous examples of this blended approach, including introducing a new model of working with patients following a heart attack, which involved cardiology, consultant pharmacist support and medicines review, and then evaluating this re-engineered service to see whether it improved adherence and outcomes. What struck me about Rani and the other consultants I spoke to is that they all share a laser sharp focus on the bigger picture and they're all committed to constantly re-evaluating whether they're achieving that vision. Consultants are people who are leaders. You need to start thinking about what leadership means. You need to think about solutions. You need to think about development of others. You need to think about outcomes that you're working towards. You need to have a vision and to collaborate with others to deliver. So I'd say to become a consultant, you need to really embrace the concept of leadership. Of course, we need you to be an expert in your clinical field, but that's not what consultant is only. It is beyond that. It is that concept of leadership, uh, that concept of collaboration, that concept of vision and clarity, that concept of investing, such as in research, educating others, and being involved at a wider level. This leadership and collaboration that everyone spoke to can lead to some amazing achievements. I spoke to Andrew Radley, who's credentialed as consultant ready and has been a consultant in pharmaceutical public health in NHS Tayside for over 16 years. He worked with University of Dundee professor John Dillon to set up a pharmacy pathway that helped to eliminate hepatitis C in Tayside in 2020, the first region in the world to do so effectively. We got community pharmacists to test injecting drug users, diagnose their hepatitis C and treat them in the community pharmacies. And 
we published that in one of the Lancet journals and just the opportunities to do that seem absolutely phenomenal. And, and you know, I'm so grateful to everyone that supported me to help achieve that. The uh, thing that I'm doing at the moment with Professor Sutherland is we're trying to put point of care HbA1c monitors into pharmacy to see if we can um, diagnose the population of pre-diabetics from a pharmacy. And I'm working with colleagues across the east of Scotland. And again, I'm, I'm really grateful because this is always a team effort, but I'm so grateful to be able to be part of the innovation. And as I said, as a hospital pharmacist, I never dreamed I could do projects of this scale and importance. I also spoke to Paula Crawford, who's been a hospital pharmacist for 27 years and in 2019 started as a consultant pharmacist for older people's services within the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust. She's currently working on a project with the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service to develop a new referral pathway into the Medicines Adherence Service for older people. So whenever the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service come across patients in their own home who are having difficulty with medicines adherence issues, we're hoping that they can then refer patients to our medicines adherence pharmacist within the team and they can go out and visit the patient in their own home and look at any um, look at solutions really to improve their adherence and do a medicines review. So how do pharmacists prepare to take on these complex, high-achieving roles? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the RPS launched a consultant pharmacist credentialing programme a couple of years ago. Now, this is available to all pharmacists practising in patient-focused roles. It involves a programme of learning that's based on the consultant pharmacist curriculum. And this describes the entry-level knowledge, skills, behaviours and levels of performance expected of consultant pharmacists. Pharmacists going through the process have to demonstrate that they've met the curriculum outcomes by undertaking a wide range of different types of learning and collecting a portfolio of evidence which is ultimately submitted to the RPS and assessed by a panel of experts. Examples of evidence could include a wide range of things such as published journal articles, written feedback from patients, evidence of active involvement in the design of care pathways or recordings of presentations, meetings or consultations. So if you want to take a very weighty salary and take public money and buy essentially a consultant pharmacist, then it's only fair that the public should think, well, what are the skills of this person clinically and non-clinically to form this quite important population level function? As Paul says, the credentialing process, rightly so, is not a small undertaking. Hannah Bieber, a consultant pharmacist in diabetes at West Yorkshire Health and Care Partnership, who got accredited in July this year, explains that it's difficult to do all of the learning needed while still holding down a full-time job. Yeah, it felt like it wasn't going to come together and then all of a sudden it was there. I think it's really hard because you'll do different pieces of work at different times over quite a long time period. So for me, again, that was probably the things that have gone into my portfolio have been done over probably the last three years or so. Certainly I found it difficult while I was actually credentialing and submitting that portfolio. I think again it's just a lot of engagement with people and you can't be doing that really in your in your working day or it's not possible to do it in your working day. I think there were sort of two facets to that I suppose. There's doing the things that are going to build your portfolio to the point where you could submit for credentialing but also there's the liaising with all the people who need to give you feedback on that which is quite time consuming as well. Hannah's talking there about the people that candidates need to find to help them achieve the curriculum outcomes. These include observers to evidence what they've achieved, 
a professional coach to help them reflect on and monitor their progress, and several expert mentors to provide targeted support in the key areas of the curriculum. Hannah, for example, had eight mentors, two for each pillar of practice, and they came from a mix of professional backgrounds, including medics, academics, and pharmacists from various sectors. I think sometimes people feel that the portfolio is a bit of a chore, but actually the mentorship element of that, I had some really fantastic conversations with my mentors that have really helped me not just scope what I needed to do to get through the credentialing, but actually have helped me think about what do I do now? Because you've been working towards something for so many years that you forget to think about what you're gonna do on the other side of this. Hannah admitted that it was difficult to find a good work-life balance while going through the credentialing process but that things have improved since she qualified and she's now managing to claw back some time for herself and her family. In fact, all of the consultants I spoke to stress the importance of maintaining a life outside of work. Here's Paula again. Yeah, you just have to really prioritise as well. Your life outside of work is very important, obviously. Um, you need to do what makes you happy, enjoy time with your family as well. So I'm a great believer in working really hard during the day when you're, when you're in your workplace, but then also you need to take that family time as well. Achieving this work-life balance is all the more remarkable for Paula, given that she has just started a PhD at Queen's University Belfast, looking at medicines linked to falls in older people which she hopes will lead to service improvements. Now, you might be listening to this podcast and wondering if you should be aiming to become a consultant. In fact, recent research conducted by Paul and Andrew suggests that more than three quarters of advanced practice pharmacists surveyed in the UK are interested in becoming a consultant. But how many consultants do we actually need? Is this a path that every pharmacist should be on, a bit like the medical model? At the moment, we are far from that, with only 155 of these posts across the UK, a small number in the context of a 60,000-strong pharmacist workforce. Andrew says that the consultant role is not one that all pharmacists should be striving for. So we certainly need um, everyone who's a career-grade pharmacist to be um, credentialed at advanced practice level. Um, so that's the givens. That's become the new normal, and, and that's really what the objective should be for the profession, to have everyone, you know, um, hospital pharmacists, community pharmacists, credentialed at advanced practice level, because we need to perform at that level for our patients. Medicines are getting more complicated, care is becoming more complicated and more diverse. But then I don't think that we need to ape what the medics have done. So it, it doesn't have to be that the end of your training programme, you automatically become a, get a consultant post. I mean, Tayside's got you know, several hundred medical consultants and I don't think we need several hundred pharmacist consultants. However, we probably do need seven, eight, nine of us to, to work in key areas. The point is that we innovate and we improve patient outcomes for populations. And so, you know, that should be the point of, a, of appointing a consultant. Paul, who works closely with Andrew up in Scotland, agrees that not everyone should be aiming to be a consultant. He also believes that there needs to be a shift of emphasis for consultants from specialists to generalists. So we know from the work that we've just published that if you self-identify as a specialist, you're probably about three to four times more likely to feel confident as a consultant uh, level kind of practitioner. Because the path to this and the opportunities for the generalists are a little harder to see. So when you're in a specialism, the goal that you're pulling towards 
the visibility of each other and the opportunities for you all to work together on projects are, are, are much more explicit in front of your eyes. Whereas if you're a community pharmacist or a general practice-based pharmacist, you're a little bit more isolated professionally. You still have an MDT around you, but perhaps in that day-to-day -day sense, you're a little less visible to each other. So we do, if we want those people, need to perhaps even wait some opportunities to them going forward, because if we don't do that and target some of these people, we'll get what you get, which is subspecialist um, consultant pharmacists that are interested in um, certain quite small topics. But what does society need? It needs 70, 80% of our clinicians to be well-rounded generalists that can deal with 80% of the problems and only thereafter, if it's very complicated, you send them on to somebody like me. So yeah, I think we should have generalists. I think the vast majority of these cases should be generalist and then it should be peppered with perhaps 20, 25% of specialists. Although consultant level practice is clearly not for everyone, we do still need more consultants than we currently have, something the Chief Pharmaceutical Officers recognised when they published the new guidance in 2020. And in fact, workforce strategies for consultant pharmacists are in the pipeline in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, with publication of these expected in the next year. In England, decisions about developing consultant pharmacist posts will be made locally by integrated care system chief pharmacists who are leading on local workforce strategies. I was interested to know whose responsibility it is to smooth the path for more pharmacists to become consultants. Here's Rani. It isn't good enough for the leadership bodies like the RPS, the our chief pharmacist officer to actually discuss this, these visions. We want that discussed. We want them to, to, to say about what ideally it needs to look like. But then we need that to filter down and actually be seen in everyday work. So I want to see chief pharmacists, clinical directors, when they assess or evaluate the performance of pharmacists or pharmacy workforce, they ask them about important elements such as research. How much research have you been involved in? They value any involvement in that. They acknowledge it to be part of the job to an extent. Yes, it might be only 5-10% of it, but at least it's an acknowledged part of what those pharmacists need to be achieving. Work is ongoing to try to make it easier for pharmacists to progress their clinical careers. In Scotland, Andrew's leading work to create an academy that he hopes will help younger pharmacists to navigate the process. And in England, Hannah's working with colleagues to improve workforce planning. We're doing some really nice work just now with, with Ness and with um, the Directors of Pharmacy for Scotland. And so um, we've been supported to set up what we call an advanced practice academy. So in, in this academy, we're going to start in the autumn, we're going to register pharmacists who want to credential at advanced level or consultant level, and we're going to hothouse them. So we're going to make sure they get protected learning time and a proper PDP. We're going to do an action plan for them to look at their competencies and what the gaps are. And then we're going to work with some mentorship preceptorship to find them the opportunities that allow them to demonstrate the competencies. And we're going to try that for a couple of years and to see where we get to but I find that very exciting mm. so rather than as I said meandering around trying to create your opportunities we're going to try and organize that a bit better so we can um, create a line of people coming forward to take the jobs so certainly in Leeds we've been having discussions around 
how do we get people more on a track to consultant and um, we know that there's workforce issues there's a real need for consultant pharmacist posts and so we need to think about you know can we move people into a highly specialist post pending then to move into consultant a that's good for resilience we know that the gap that a consultant pharmacist leaves if they if they retire or leave or uh, unwell or anything is huge because they do so much across the system so to have that bit of resilience as well is really good and so from a workforce planning point of view it, it makes it makes total sense and it allows that person to move into a post where they can do the building of their portfolio in their day job and not have to do all this stuff in their own time which is better for well-being. These barriers to becoming a consultant that Andrew, Hannah and others are trying to solve are recognised by those leading the plans for consultant assessment and credentialing nationally. What we are hearing is that pharmacists don't have the protected learning time or protected space within their roles to undertake this professional development. Here's Joseph Oakley again from the RPS. There isn't a support structure or formal support structure of individuals to support them through it in terms of developing their e-portfolio. Lots of this is currently done through goodwill and volunteering outside of work hours. Um, so we absolutely need to push for this time and space and capacity for pharmacists to undertake professional development within their roles. The second point is pharmacists um, ability to engage in non-clinical um, activities such as regional educational work and really importantly research. Um, we've heard both from that and a piece of research we undertook around um, perceived gaps in people's experience that pharmacists are just not being exposed to the research activities required to meet the curriculum outcomes. As Andrew mentioned earlier, the vision is to have armies of advanced pharmacists credentialed and ready to go with all the skills to improve care alongside their consultant colleagues. But that will take professional bodies, government and the NHS working together. An independent commission has been set up by the chief pharmaceutical officers in the four nations of the UK to look at this and it will publish a report early next year. I think that as a patient you want to know what the word advanced means in the job title of any healthcare professional that you're seeing and that there is an assumed level of standardisation in the use of that job title. We are a long way away from that at the moment um, and I think that's fine. I think that's a journey that we and the profession need to go on but ultimately I think we want to absolutely see credentialing linked to policy um, to some kind of regulatory annotation to an individual's career progression their job title and their salary because then there was a real demonstrable difference um, and recognition of that advancement. The Independent Commission could be a real opportunity to advance this agenda much more quickly than it may have um, happened organically. With the current crisis in the NHS, the ongoing redesign of healthcare systems and increasingly complex treatments and patients, advanced and consultant level clinical pharmacy expertise is needed now more than ever. And achieving this will take a change in attitude from the whole profession. So would you say that you're optimistic about the future of pharmacy? Yeah, and in terms of consultant pharmacists as well. Uh, so I <laughs> I think we have all the cogs now and all the conditions in pharmacy to, for, for change. 
I think pharmacy now have to choose it. So I'm optimistic that we're starting to see how we can knit together a proper career spectrum that I think could work in any sector. But I think it's going to take us a decade or two to get to that point of this type of Royal College type profession. I think it's going to require us all to take a step into the middle ground to grow our maturity in pharmacy in a way that we, we haven't. We've valued our independence too much. Well, I don't really need you, Don. Thanks very much. I'll see you later. That leads us nowhere. It leads us to a place where society doesn't understand pharmacy. Oh, well, that is laying down quite a challenge for us all, isn't it? As always, we'll be following this story and we'll bring you all of the key developments as they happen. So keep an eye on our website and social media channels for any updates. And for those undertaking credentialing, may the force be with you. That's it from me for this time. Thanks to all of our trailblazing consultants for carving out some time for us in their busy schedules. And more importantly, thanks to you for listening. We really appreciate your support for our journalism. The best way to make sure you never miss an episode is to hit follow or subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. Go on, do it. You know you want to. The PJ Pod is brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Journal, the official journal of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. This episode was produced by Jeff Marsh and presented by me, Dawn Connolly, with support from Nigel Prates. See you next time. Bye-bye.